Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What's up, Dream Builder? We are back again. And in today's episode, of course, I'm always excited to be talking to anybody who can teach me anything. But today I'm very excited because we have somebody who's done it in an unconventional way. Right. And I did a little bit of research very briefly on your story, but I know that your inspiration came from two soon to be probably trillion dollar companies, right? And, and Uber and Airbnb. So I'm going to be very, very intrigued to hear what you have to say about this. But please, Dream Nation, help me in welcoming my brother, Mr. Brian Clayton to the show. Brian, you want to go ahead and say what's up to Dream Nation? Dream Nation, what's up? And Casanova, thanks so much for having me on your show. It's great to be here. Oh, absolutely. It's a pleasure to have you. Now, um, I always like to start off these episodes. I don't know if you've heard before, but I start them off as I compare us entrepreneurs, thought leaders, change makers to superheroes. And why is because we're constantly flying around the world and we're doing the best that we can to put on our cape and solve some of the world's biggest problems. And I know that that's something that you've been doing, um, seems like your whole lifetime from what I've read. Um, but I always like to get a little bit more of the backstory, right? And, and what do I mean by that? I mean that a lot of the times we know who Superman is. We see the S on the chest, but we don't necessarily know who is the guy behind the scenes. And in particular, that Clark Kent. We can't really describe who is that guy. So my question to you is for anybody who's seen you online or they've seen you in Forbes or Entrepreneur, any of these other, you know, publications, they necessarily don't know who is that Clark Kent when it comes to Brian Clayton. So tell us. Who is he? Uh, well, I guess I'm just an ordinary guy. You know, I, I, uh, I don't really have any superpowers. I don't have any super talents. I, I, what I like to say is uh, anybody that watches an interview that I've done or, or reads some stuff that I put out, I want them to come away with, if that guy can do it, I can do it. And, and so I guess I'm just an ordinary dude who, who just has just grinded his butt off for, for 20 years and, and has built two businesses and sold one. And, and uh, I retired at the age of 32. And, and, and I think uh, who I am is I'm just an ordinary cat with, with, with ordinary intelligence who's just worked really hard and built really good teams around himself and has done a couple cool things. That's what's up, man. Well, we're definitely going to dive all into it. Give us a little bit of background on your growing up. Uh, did you come from entrepreneurship? Did you come from, you know, a stable? What did, what did that look like for you? Yeah, I'm the first entrepreneur in our family, uh, but I had two really hardworking uh, parents, and, and they taught me work ethic. They taught me uh, accountability. They taught me discipline. They taught me uh, quality, and I was actually forced into entrepreneurship by my father on a hot summer day in the mid-90s. He came into my, my room and uh, interrupted me playing Super Mario Kart and said, hey, get off your butt. Uh, I lined you up to do a, a gig. You're going to go mow the neighbor's yard. And he made me go cut the neighbor's grass. And, I, and luckily, I wasn't living in a democracy. And uh, it was a direct order. And mowed the neighbor's yard, got paid like 20 bucks. And after that, I was hooked. Uh, I was like, this is incredible. I, there was a pair of soccer cleats that I wanted to buy that were like $100. And my folks, they were more along the lines of the $20 cleats type of people. They weren't going to buy me the $100 cleats. So I thought, if I can get four more of these customers, I can make enough money to buy the cleats and 
like two weeks. This will be great. So the first thing I did is I passed out a bunch of flyers all over the neighborhood and I uh, had like 12 lawn mowing customers that uh, by the end of that first summer. And I just stuck with that lawn mowing business. I never looked back. I, I, I just said, well, I'm going to see how far I can take this and kept, kept cutting grass all through high school, all through college. Graduated college, made a little business plan, and ended up building one of the largest landscaping businesses in the state of Tennessee where I live, getting that company like over 150 employees, over $10 million a year in revenue, and in 2013 sold the business to one of the largest landscaping conglomerates in the United States, and then retired. Retired at the age of 32, 33, and got bored and decided, okay, what now? And I decided to start my second business, GreenPal. Wow. Okay. So go back because I, I mean, I got a, a 10 year old boy right now, right? And we're going into this over the next couple of years that I've told him he will be shoveling, right? He will be mowing grass. But for you, what was the drive, the inspiration? Because even after you got these soccer cleats, right? And, and did you ever get the cleats for first? I up? did. You got I it. I did. I did. I did. And then I quickly realized why my parents didn't buy me $100 cleats. I was like, <laughs> I was like, man, these are nice, but they ain't that nice. And so, and, so nice. uh, <laughs> and now you have you know, to take care of them because you're like, well, listen, I paid, I paid my money for these. I got to, I can't even really go out and play how I want to. They might get I, scuffed I, up. I cleaned them with a toothbrush, and that's no lie. I literally cleaned them things with a with a toothbrush after I got done with practice. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's so owning your own little business, or even you know having a job when you're young, teaches you all sorts of life lessons that you'll never learn any other way. So so good for you. You get your boy a shovel and a push mower. Absolutely. Now, let me ask, what was the motivation for you to keep going, though? Because for a lot of people, when they first get into business, everybody has that instant motivation. But then after they do it, especially after you accomplish your goal, what was the next thing that kept you going that you built a real business out of this? Yeah, I, I for me, and it's funny, the, the motivation behind why you do what you do and what you're doing in business, I think evolves over time. And, and in the early days, it was all about let's get this money. Like, let's, like I wanted $500 in my pocket at all times, you know, and I did. I, I mean, I always, had, I always had enough cash to do whatever I wanted to do when I was a teenager, and I loved that. I loved the freedom. I loved the ability to just buy the things I wanted to buy. If I wanted to buy a new radio for my car, I could, you know, stuff like that. And so that was like the, I guess you could say, level one of, of business ownership. And then it kind of evolved into, I had a chip on my shoulder. I thought, well, this could be the thing that I do to like make, my, make something of myself. This could be my lane. Small business ownership could be the thing I can do to level up in life. And that was very much the motivation from like age 18 to 25. I really just wanted to have the biggest, most profitable landscaping business in my market around Nashville, Tennessee. And, and I thought, I, I can do this. I, I, can, I can make this happen. And so it's kind of a chip on my shoulder to, to want to build something great. And then after I had like five or ten employees, I began to realize, ooh, this is not necessarily all about me. This is about the people that work here. Because now I've got, you know, I was, I was like 24 years old, but I had people that were in their 40s working for me, and they had kids, and they had, like, bills. And I'm like, if I screw this up, I'm going to screw it up for these folks. So then it, then it like, it's like a benevolence kicked in. And I thought, okay, this is more than me. This is bigger than myself. I better not screw this up. I better learn the skills I need to learn and do the things I need to do. So it's funny, as you're starting and growing a business, I think your motivation and your why kind of evolves over time. And it certainly has been the case for me as I started and sold my first company. Yeah. Talk to me about when you first got started and, and this is, I think this is go for any age limit, but for you, you said you were 18 when you really figured out that this can be my lane. So talk to me about where were you getting your mentorship from at that time? 
right? Because you're building something out and now all of a sudden you always got this money in your pocket, but nobody, mm. from what I've heard so far, was there anybody that was leading you along the way or was it just pure drive and determination? Yeah, so this is late 90s, early 2000s. You know, we didn't really have you know, all of the wealth of information at our fingertips like we do today. So it wasn't like I could just hop on YouTube and, and watch some guru, which I do today, but, but I couldn't do that back then. And uh, for me, my motivation was, was, uh, was coming from a lot of my customers. I, I started, you know, I was working in the affluent parts of town. I grew up in a very, very, very middle class, not poor, but not rich. Um, and so, but I'm working in the ritzy parts of town and, and I started noticing something. There was one guy in particular I mean, this, this guy was wealthy, and he was not the smartest cat. I mean, he, uh, but he had a little insurance business, and, and I thought, and then I saw another guy who, uh, who owned a set of uh, uh, dentist offices, and then another dude who, who, who had car washes, and then another dude, and so I started seeing, like, these patterns that, yeah, I worked for a lot of doctors, and I worked for a lot of lawyers, but I also saw a lot of people who just weren't that particularly exceptional or brilliant but they worked hard in their little business and, and, and that they were, you know, they were financially independent. They lived in the part of town you wanted to live in. They drove the kind of cars you wanted to drive. Their kids went to private schools, things like that. And I thought, that can be me. I can, I can do that. And, and uh, so that was kind of validation for me. So I guess the business kind of exposed me to people who were not any more smarter than I thought than I was that, could, that were doing big things. And I thought, okay, this can be, this business can be the vehicle that, that can carry me to places. And, and then the other thing too is, 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 is I started seeing um, other businesses in my industry flourishing too. You know, there was, you know, I only had one truck, but I saw businesses that had 20 and 30. They were sending out 30 crews every day. I thought, I can do that. There's no reason why I can't. So I laid out a little plan and just, and just worked hard and built a good team and did it. That's what's up. So let me, now you're starting to really become successful at this first business. How did you know that you, because talk to me about what the first, the first business was a landscape business that then you said you wound up selling to a conglomerate. Now, as you start to build this thing out and you go get, how many trucks did you end up with? You said you started out with one. Yeah. Yeah. At uh, year 15, we were sending out 90 every day and uh, 90 different crews and 90 different directions. And we had systems and processes and middle management and sales teams and, and, and administrative staff and, and mechanics. Like at the, end of the, at the end of that company, I had like three mechanics, full-time mechanics working for me that, that uh, all they did was fix stuff, uh, fix trucks, fix mowers. And so it was very much a, a big operation. You know, it was $10 million plus business. And, but, but, you know, like I just grew it little by little by little, uh, almost like a video game. Uh, just took one level at a time, took a long time, took 10, 10, 15 years. I really didn't make, you know, I didn't make any kind of material income until like year six or seven. You know, one of my favorite quotes is Mark Cuban, uh, you know, the least you can live on, the greater your options. I was living on like 18, 20 grand a year uh, from 1998 to 2005. And, and I was pouring every dime I had back into the business, buying new trucks, buying, buying more, more equipment. You know, uh, there was times my salespeople made more money than I did because I was trying to figure out the economics around that. So it was very much like a long game. It was just something that I, I just had faith in. And, and, uh, and, and if I had a bunch of like personal burn, personal overhead, I may not have made it, may not have been able to get over the hump. 
So talk to me something that I'm very interested in. How, what did the, when you figured out that you had an opportunity to sell this business, did these people approach you? Were you already looking to get out? What did that look like? You know, ideally, you know, you work a five-year exit plan and you say, okay, in five years, I want to sell this company and uh, I'm going to start doing the things that I should be doing today to do that in five years. I did not do that. Um, I had no plans to sell the business. I, I, I really thought I was going to run that business my entire life. But something like clicked in me. Um, if you're doing business correctly, I think you should evolve into a completely new person every two or three years. You know, new skills, you know, new challenges you're facing, new obstacles you're overcoming, and you're like learning and growing along the way. And, and that was the case for me, the first problem. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 10 or 12 years and then I think I kind of like plateaued and it's not that I conquered the world in that business you know I certainly could have like maybe taken it to different cities and stuff but I didn't have the desire to and I kind of plateaued from a from a personal growth standpoint and I really wasn't getting that out of the business so I thought well maybe I should explore selling it and from the idea I had that idea uh, from the moment I had that idea to the moment of getting it done was was over two years because there's a lot of things you have to do to get a business ready to sell. There's a lot of systems you have to put in place. There's a lot of processes. There's a lot of things you have to do around the accounting. And, and we're not always doing those things 100% correctly unless we, we are working an exit plan. And then the other thing is, is the way you run a business that you're going to sell versus one that you kind of like aren't going to sell are very different. Uh, there's very, there's very different, um, kind of strategies in terms of how you expense things and how you, what, what kinds of expenses you take on. And, and there might be investments that don't pay off five or 10 years later that you might necessarily not take if you're going to sell the company. Why is that? Because they pay you a multiple of the net profit. And so you really are optimizing for short-term profitability, uh, to juice that number, uh, versus long-term strategic thinking, which is how I was thinking, you know, the, the whole time. And so, so those two things are kind of at odds with each other. So I wish I had ran a five-year uh, exit plan, but I didn't. I kind of had to reverse engineer all those things in at the, at the, at the goal line. And it still, it worked out. I mean, the company that bought it, you know, the business is still running to this day, and they've grown it. They've made money. We made money, so it all worked out. Yeah. Now, for anybody who's who's first looking at this, whether they're starting an e-com business or a service-based business, that's probably the first that they've heard. Like, listen, you should have a five-year exit plan, exit strategy. We always talk about this in the real estate side, but on the business side, I don't think a lot of people talk about that. Where did you learn that information? Did you just reach out one day and you were like, hey, I'm thinking about selling my business, and this was a business broker who said, okay, well, here's the things you need to put in place? Or what did that look like for you? How did you... That's exactly how it happened. I had, I had no clue how to do any of this and uh, I did know I did I did at least have the good idea to hire a broker that worked in my industry met him at a conference uh, that was geared towards our industry and he kind of sherped me along and exposed me to the reality that we didn't have a lot of the things in place you know we didn't run gap accounting which most small business owners don't and uh, and so we had to go back and reverse uh, engineer all of that stuff in and ended up spending like almost a hundred thousand dollars with a CPA firm uh, to, to kind of clean up all of our accounting. 
And uh, so there's that. There's all, there's all sorts of things I did not know. And this was 2012, 13. Nowadays, you know, you know even that's only nine years ago, um, there's no excuse because the knowledge is out there. Uh, all you got to do is read the book Built to Sell and do everything that book says, and you'll have, you'll have a much better experience selling your business than I did. But that book didn't exist when I was selling my company, or maybe it, maybe it did, it just came out. So, so you, can get, you can be proactive about these things, acquire the knowledge before you start a process like this, and, and be in much better shape than I was trying to sell my company. Got it. Yeah, that's super valuable information. And anybody who has not read that book, it's funny because I've been recommended that book like probably twice in the last six months. And so hearing it's it again, book if you, if you want to sell small businesses, it's the, it's the, it's the Holy Bible. It's a really good book. All right, definitely. We'll definitely check it out and we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Now you then retire, you're living the good life. You did everything that, you know, the accountant firm told you to do your business broker told you to do. You then sell what makes you decide you want to get back into the business? Yeah, Any it was business. all that. Uh, yeah, it, it really was. I mean, I, I, I had everything paid for. I didn't have to work anymore. It wasn't like I was filthy, but I had enough money uh, to not have to wor ever work again and live a good, comfortable, middle-class lifestyle. And I think it hit me, uh, I think I was sitting on a beach in Costa Rica somewhere, and, and uh, it hit me that the only problem I had faced in two weeks was that the bar ran out of my favorite type of tequila. And I thought, oh, man, this is, I'm wired. I am, I am, I am geared to solve bigger problems than this. There's got to be more out there, more to life than this. And so I thought, well, I'm going to start another business because uh, maybe that's what's missing. I need, to be, I, I need to be part of a mission. I need to, like, I'm, I'm wired to want to be in the game. So let's start another business. And I really, I, this is how I felt. I thought, well, that was really hard. You know, that landscaping company, 150 employees, million problems every day. It was really challenging. I, I don't want to do that again because that was really hard. I'm going to do something easy this time. I'm going to start a software business because I see all these tech startups getting rich. And I thought, okay, I'm going to do the easy thing. And, and boy, I didn't know what I didn't know. Uh, I thought the idea for uh, the Uber for lawn care should happen. And I thought, you know, an app needs to exist to do what I just spent the last 15 years of my life in. And I recruited two co-founders, and we went to work on building the app, the Uber for lawn mowing. And we were quickly confronted with, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Uh, maybe even 10 times harder than my, <laughs> than my last company. Um, and, and so... We, we paid a dev shop to build the first version of the app and released it, and it was a total flop, total failure. We were able to hustle up, hustle up like 20 customers. And uh, Why do and you think the first one was a total failure? What did you, knowing what you know now, what could you have done to make it a success in the first go-around? It was probably a dozen different reasons why, why it flopped. One was we didn't know how to code. We didn't know how to build software. And none of us, my two co-founders and I did not know how to build software and didn't know how to write software. And so we really disbelieved all we had to do was pay a dev shop to build an app. We would release it and then we would just be off and going. And, and that's what we did. We wasted $150,000 doing that. And, and we released that version. It was, it was clunky, buggy, didn't have the features it needed, didn't, didn't have all of the, the workflows in place to, to, to deliver a consistent experience. Um, it was poorly designed, hard to use, and there was like a million improvements we need to make on it. And here we are, we don't have any acumen to do that. And, and it was kind of like looking back, it's kind of like starting a, a five-star restaurant with no chef. It's kind of like 
trying to uh, open up a new franchise for uh, for a fast casual uh, restaurant chain, but no recipes. And so we had to, you know, like it was just silly. It was it was it was asinine. Do you think we could do that? So we had to teach ourselves how to write software, teach ourselves how to code, teach ourselves how to design software. That took like three years. And as we were learning, we then built the second version and, and started iterating, making it better and better and better and better and better to where it was something that people could use and that you could literally push a button and, and somebody would come out and mow your yard for you. Gotcha. Now, the feedback, you, you said you only had 20 because a lot of the times you want to get as much feedback, as much data as you can on that first launch. That's right. Right. So if you guys didn't have a lot of the feedback because you, you weren't, you said you were able to muster up about 20, maybe 50 clients, where were you getting your feedback from to know how to come back two, three years later with a stronger reiteration of it? Yeah. It, uh, so to your point, uh, the book, The Lean Startup, that is all that, you know, that's all that book is about, is about launching something, getting it out there, getting it in the hands of customers, meeting with them, and getting the feedback to bake into your next set of, of iterations uh, to improve it. And using that customer feedback uh, to kind of guide how you, how you develop the product is really a, like, it's, it's the lifeblood. And that's how we approached it. And we, we did have about maybe 30 customers, and, and we got those by passing out door flyers. Uh, door hangers all over Nashville, Tennessee. And we probably passed out 100,000 of these things and maybe got 500 signups and maybe 100 people tried it. And then 20 or 30 continued to use it. And, it, and we met with every one of those people that, that, would, that would meet with us. And we would always hear the same things, like not exactly the same things, but like the five main problems as to why we suck and, and then like maybe five other things. But we never heard... I don't want this. We never heard, I don't need this. Matter of fact, they were disappointed. They were upset that the app didn't work like f perfectly. It didn't deliver on somebody showing up and, and doing a great job mowing their yard. And so we used that kind of like app, that, that, uh, that, that disappointment as validation to say, okay, well, we're onto something here because these people, we didn't see apathy. We didn't see meh. We, we saw disappointment. And so if we just, you know, if we, if we made it like a magical experience, they would use it, they would tell their friends and, and so on. And so, and so we had maybe 20 to 30 people that, that were kind of in the trenches with us that, that, that were uh, using it as we were improving it. And, and that was kind of enough proof points. You know, you don't need a thousand people. You don't need a hundred. You really just need like a dozen or two um, and you'll learn so much more uh, from those dozen people than you will spending years just like r taking courses and and uh, uh, hypothesizing and strategizing and like theorizing. Like you will learn more if you can get a if you can get a shitty product in a customer's hand. You will learn more from five of those people than you will of five years of just reading books and taking courses. Mm, I love and it. So, I love it. So that's what I really try to like preach to, to folks. It's like, it's like they got this business plan, they got this prototype, maybe they got a, a beta out, they got no customers. It's like, go get five customers. I don't care what you have to do. And even if you have to hand crank it, even if you have to spoof it, you'll learn more from those five people than you will in the next year. Uh, and you'll learn if there's a business here or not. Gotcha. No, I think that that's so the MVP model, right? Like you, you got to just get you an MVP out there. And there's so much of the time that people start businesses, but they don't do any type of research, right? And, and it's like, okay, I, I understand why you want to start this business that you see that there's a need, but there's only a need if you see that people are willing to pay for it. 
right? Yeah. And this all is really how life it's really how life is too. You know, there there's two things I'm doing right now. Uh, I'm learning I'm learning how to Muay Thai box, and I'm learning how to salsa dance. And and so you the only way to learn how to Muay Thai box is to spar. Like you, you can sit there and watch videos on YouTube. You can sit, you can, you can hit bags, you can hit mitts. Uh, but the minute you get into like the ring or the minute you get into a, into like an actual fight, the only thing that matters is how much time you spent sparring. And then the same thing with salsa dancing. You can sit there and like watch stuff on YouTube. You can, you can even like go to, go to a group class, but, but you have to get on the dance floor and practice that stuff. And business is the same way. You have to get a product in somebody's hands, get the feedback, get that experiential wisdom, because that's the only way you're going to learn if you're on the right track or not and where you got to take it. And this is kind of like how the universe just works, but we always want to believe it doesn't. And uh, nobody wants to sit there and like meet with somebody at Starbucks and let them just tell you where you suck uh, for, for 20 minutes. But you kind of need that, especially in the early days, because that, that's going to save you years of wasted time. Yeah. No, and, and now I think I was reading that now, you, I mean, you're a lot bigger into the VC world. Am I right? Like you, you do a lot with venture capital and business and things like that. Is that right? I have not personally raised any money for GreenPal. We have, we've bootstrapped the whole thing off of its own revenues, but I do make angel investments. And so Got it. Uh, I, I do angel investing as on the side as more or less as a hobby and, and maybe it might pay off in 10 years. Maybe it won't. Um, but I have also funded green Powell off of its own revenues and as that's kind of counter to where to what a lot of startups do they they believe well the first thing i need to do is go out and raise a bunch of money maybe 500k and i don't need to do anything else until i get that done and it's really kind of the the, the reverse you need to get you need to get some some traction you need to get some revenue and then maybe go raise money or not um and and i think a lot of times founders try to build something that vcs or investors like and not necessarily what customers like so I purposely took us down the path of, of, of funding the business off of its own revenues. And, and, and it turned out to be the right strategy for us because there's like a graveyard of Uber for lawn mowing apps. There's probably 10 or 12 that, that, that have gone out of business in the last 10 years. And we're the largest and the biggest and, and the only, one of the only ones that survived. And it probably was because we bootstrapped it. If we had raised a bunch of money, we'd have made the same mistakes all these other teams made where we try to move too fast. And, and it's like pouring gasoline on wet leaves. Like it just never, never goes anywhere. And so that's how it worked out for us. Now, I'm not anti-VC. I'm not anti-taking on capital. I think it works. It's, 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 it's a good fit for certain, certain businesses. But for ours, I think it was the best, the best bet was self-funding it. Got it. And that was the reason why I was asking is like for somebody, because that's a conversation that I know I've been in quite a bit over the last six months and people asking like, hey, it seems like the VC world is growing, growing, growing. Obviously, people are making a lot of money off of crypto and all these other things that are a lot more disposable than what it was 15 years ago. So it's like maybe I should raise capital. And so from everything that you've told me up front, that was where I was trying to go with it as to like, should somebody be looking at raising capital? How should they know? If, you know, starting when you said, hey, it's maybe not my industry, how does someone know if they're in the industry where they do need a lot more capital or should they just keep bootstrapping it? Because it feels like everybody starts out bootstrapping, but they don't even necessarily know if they have a good product for raising capital. When you know you can sell your mom's house and spend the money and return her three times the money in five years, then it's time to raise venture capital. Like, like think of the venture capital as like, if I blow this money, mom's going to be homeless. And, and like that, that crystallization of your thinking 
will really give you a gut check. Do you really just need the money because it's hard and you don't want to do the hard work? Or do you know I can put 300 grand to work and get 300 grand back or maybe a million back? And so it's, it's really... Uh, it's really a matter of those two. And, and there's times where if you'd given me two or three or five million dollars in green pile, I'd have pissed every dime of it away because I didn't know what to do with it. You know, I may have, could, I may have put, could have put a hundred grand to work or 200, but I couldn't have put three million. And a lot of our competitors did that and they wasted it on stuff that didn't matter. And it's a sad ending. And, and the reality is, is that venture capital raising it is, is, is a bad bet for most entrepreneurs. It's like one out of 10 hit, if that. And a lot of times that one out of 10 that hits, like they're on their second or third try. You know, it's like there are no, there are very rare like overnight successes that occur over two or three years. And it's that first, that founder's first attempt. Most of the time they, they swung and missed on two or three other things. And that's fine. But, but these are the things you need to know when, when you're going to raise capital that it's, it's a, the, the chances of success are still very slim. And all you got to do is like, look at like Y Combinator, which is the NFL of the NFL of this sort of thing. Like these, this is the incubator behind Airbnb, Stripe, Instacart, Reddit, uh, DoorDash, uh, the list goes on and on. Uh, 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 There's like, like five other multi like Decacorn companies and probably 50 or 60 other companies that are, that are multi-billion dollar outcomes. And you say, well, all I got to do is just go to Instacart and I'll build something great. Well, what you don't realize, like, okay, there's 60 or 70 names that, that are huge, but there's also like 3,000 that never went anywhere. <laughs> like literally right. like 3,000 other companies that you've never heard of that these guys who are at the mountaintop, uh, you know, couldn't, couldn't do anything with. And so it's still very much like a, a get rich or die trying dynamic. And, 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 if, and if you're going to go down that path, you need to be okay with that is my point. Not anti-VC, but it's like, it's not, it's not real clear um, what the, how the dynamics uh, are, are set up and how things usually shake out to most founders. So they kind of need to know that. Yeah, that's so super, super solid advice. And it's again, if you could sell your mom's house and re-deliver her, you know, three X her money, get her money back, but three X her money. Maybe just give her money back. Like, like maybe three X might be a little like ideally three X, right? But maybe you just know in two years you can give her your money back. Like, you know, gun to your head, then you're ready to raise VC. Gotcha. That's solid, solid advice. That's the standard. I think somebody that's can the standard. Right. That somebody could take that and apply it. And that's a huge nugget there. Talk to me about what's next for GreenPow, right? Because it's been very successful thus far. What are you looking to accomplish with the next? Yeah, you know, I'm not a huge like five year detailed plan kind of guy. I probably should be. I'm just not. Um I'm always looking at two or three things at a time that my team and I are working on, knocking those down and moving on to the next three. That's kind of the way I operate. Uh, but big picture, we're doing over $20 million a year now. I want to get this business to nine figures, and uh, I want to get it over $100 million a year in revenue. And so like everything we're doing is driving us towards that. I think we can get, get it in five years or less, and, and that's where we're going. And you know, every business goes through kind of three phases. you got the startup, the grow-up, and the scale-up. And we've gotten through the startup. We, you know, we got a product out there that people will use and continue to use. And so the grow up, you know, we've gotten this thing over eight figures in revenue. And we're kind of on like the early, early days of scale up land. And uh, I'll continue to pilot, pilot the ship if, if, if I'm good at it and if I'm having fun. 
if I'm not having fun and not good at it, then I'll probably sell the company or put some put a professional CEO in my place. But the next five years, hundred million, I'm having fun. I'm doing a good job, and I'll still be at the helm. I love it. I love it. Talk to me about we've we've heard now heard your success and your journey and uh, and and even some of your failures failures and we appreciate you sharing those but let me ask if there was one thing that you wish that you could have changed or even better if there's one thing that you wish that you would have implemented sooner to accelerate your path on your journey to where you are today what would that one thing be you know it's uh it first off delegation but but understanding when when to delegate and when not is hard and sometimes, you know, you, you say, well, okay, just delegate everything. And then you end up delegating too soon, and it's a disaster. And then, and then, and then, you, de- and then you delegate too late, and then that costs you time. And, you know, for instance, for us, you know, we, we didn't know how to build software, my two co-founders and I, and so we delegated. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. The tech to a shop, and that was a, that was a disaster. Um, and so we shouldn't have delegated that. We should have done the hard work that we ended up having to do, which was teach ourselves how to code, build the, the MVP, build, build the beta version, and get it out there. Instead, we wasted a year and 150K, and that was a disaster delegating too soon. But then we had like all of this, these, this like, uh, scar tissue from that, and we, dele- we waited too long to delegate. Uh, we started making a little bit of money, and we were scared to... like. To, 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 to let loose of certain aspects of the product development. And that costs us another two, two years of wasted time. When in fact, I probably as a CEO, as the founder, should have identified that and said, you know what? We now know how to write software. We're doing a pretty good job. But if I had three more developers, we can move three times faster. Let's go hire three more good developers. I, I, you know, as a, I made the mistake of waiting too long to make that call. And that cost us two or three years, and we almost never caught up with our competitors, and it almost uh, cost us the company. But we, we corrected that issue and, and developed a system, developed a way, a process to delegate and build out a team around us. And uh, so that was a mistake I made. I wish I wish I had known that at the time. It's one that I won't make again. And and uh, that's one t- that's one thing like you know a lot of, a lot of successful founders they're, they're on their second or third attempt. You know a lot of these things. The only way to learn them is just to do them wrong. And if you've never started a company, no, it's going to take you two or three or four years just to figure this stuff out. And, and if you have tried and failed, well, don't be afraid to try again because now you've got all of the, the experience and things that you did, you did wrong and you cannot waste that time on the second one. So that's a mistake I made and I, it's one I would not make again if I started another business. Yeah, no, that's very, very valuable information. We definitely appreciate you sharing that. Um, for anybody who wants to stay connected with you, uh, we'll make sure that we put all of the links to the show notes. Um, but for anybody who wants to stay directly connected with you, tell us, where can they find you at? Yeah, anybody who wants to hit me up, Instagram is the best place to reach me. You can, just, you can find me at Brian M. Clayton. Just drop me a follow and a DM there. I'll hit you back. 
Sounds good. Well, Brian, this has been a phenomenal episode. I appreciate you coming on, you sharing everything about Green Pal, your story, your journey. Um, and again, it's definitely been very inspiring. I want to be the first one that if nobody else has told you today to say thank you and I appreciate you. And um, yeah, if there's anything else that we should know at Dream Nation, is there anything that I should have asked you that maybe I didn't that you wish that I would have? Yeah, um, you know, something that, that has hit me a, a few times over the years is you think you missed it. You think you missed cloud computing. You think you missed the gig economy. You think you missed crypto. You think you missed uh, the sharing economy. You think you missed the creator economy. And the fact is, it's just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. You didn't miss it. It's not too late. You know, if you think software is going to be here 100 years from now, we're in like year 10 or 20. So you didn't miss it. It's going to get bigger. Get in the game. Because only if you're in the game can you win. And so that's, I guess that's the thoughts I'll, I'll leave your audience with. Absolutely. I mean, that's a super, super quick. That's everything in 2022, right? Get in the game. That's Get the only the way that you can win. <laughs> no, man, this has been a phenomenal episode. And just as he said, Dream Nation, you got to be willing to take action. Because if not, that dream that you have, and we all have a dream. If not, it will only merely be a fantasy. That's all for this one. We'll catch you on the next one.